to become like you in your death, my Lord. So with you to live, never die. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you. Friends, I hope that uh, the truth of the song we have just sung uh, prepares your heart for what we are about to address this morning. That godly living matters. That godly living matters. There is a version of Christianity that would seem to indicate that the most important thing in a Christian's life is uh, what you did when, uh, when you were converted. Perhaps it was at a camp. Perhaps it was uh, at some sort of Christian rally. Perhaps it was in a church setting. Regardless of the circumstance, you might remember the day. You might remember when it happened, where you were. Or you may not remember the day. May have, perhaps it was not a particular point in your life. Uh, that you can remember and point to, but, but it was a progress. Um, and, uh, uh, but, but you remember the, the, the perhaps a day when you profess Christ in baptism, and you say, well, that was, that was the most important thing in, in your life. And in some ways, it was. In some ways, it is not. Because in some ways, more importantly than one ha- what happened many years ago, or some time ago, more important than that is what is going on now. Godly living matters. Your walk with Christ now, in some ways, is more important than what happened many years ago. Well, this morning, I want us to, enc- I want us to open Scripture, I encourage you to open Scripture to the book of Titus, chapter 2. We'll be looking at verse 1 through verse 10. Uh, this passage that speaks about the importance of our life as Christians. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to, provide, to, to get a, a Bible that's provided in the pews in front of you. I encourage you to open the pew Bibles on page number 998. And if you don't own a Bible or if you don't have an ESV Bible, we'd love for, for you to have one of our pew Bibles. Take it home with you. We hope it would be an encouragement to your, to your soul, to your life. And uh, this morning, we hope that this word would be an encouragement to all our hearts. Here's the word of the Lord for us. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfast. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer, asking God through His Holy Spirit to use this word for our hearts this morning. Father, we are privileged to have your word before us. We are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us. We're thankful that you can speak to us. And Lord, we pray that you would do so today through the proclamation and through the preaching of your word. We pray for our hearts that would be open. We pray for minds that would be discerning. And Father, we pray for wills that would be ready to act and respond. We pray this in the name of Christ, for His glory and honor, through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Amen. Godly living matters. Friends, as we look at this passage, I'd like for us to point out three, uh, three points that will guide us to understand this list of, of, of do's and don'ts, if you will. This list of characteristics of what to teach people, God's people, how to live. And here's the first point as we consider this theme of godly living matters. The first point I'd like for us to look at is the fact that Paul encourages Timothy, uh, Titus to teach with the aim for godly living. Teach with the aim for godly living. Look at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Another way to translate this phrase is, but as for you, teach the things that are fitting with sound doctrine. Now we know what sound doctrine is, but what are the things that are fitting with sound doctrine? The rest of chapter 2 will include specific instructions for what fits with sound doctrine. Interestingly, what fits with sound doctrine is godly living. Is instructions about how to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. This means that we don't just teach sound doctrine to have a big head. We don't teach sound doctrine so that we might have explanations for why things are the way they are. We don't teach sound doctrine so we might feel good about how much knowledge about God we know. We teach sound doctrine in order to live a more pure life. This is why we want to teach God's people about God. Not so that we may have more explanations to things, but so that we might live a more pure life. This means that we don't just teach doctrines, we also teach everything that fits with doctrine, with sound doctrine. We are called to teach not only the gospel, but we are called to teach the implications of the gospel. Friends, as we look at this passage, it's important to remember what happened prior to it. Paul, in chapter 1, reminds Titus that he left him there in Crete to put in order what remained left in, in lack of order. And, and that order involved putting teachers or putting elders or putting, putting overseers over the lives of, this, of these churches so that these elders might be able to correct, might be able to teach God's people, and might be able to rebuke those who contradict the teaching of God's Word. Why? Why all that? Because in Crete, there were many, not few, there were many who were insubordinate, there were many who were living life uh, in, on their own terms, there were many who were professing to know God, even though by their way of life, they showed that they actually denied God. At the end of chapter 1, Tita, uh, in, in Titus, uh, Paul gives this comparison between the pure and the defiled, between the, those who are believing and those who are unbelieving, between those who are true to God's word and those who claim to know God, and yet they deny God by their way of life. So in this context, Paul tells Titus, but you, Titus, but you teach what accords with sound doctrine. And what accords with sound doctrine is not only sound doctrine, but everything in our lives that matches with that sound doctrine. Titus would be in a different category than those who profess to know God but deny Him by their works. Titus is supposed to be different. And Titus was supposed to teach differently. And Titus was supposed to lead the congregations of Christians to be different than what these false teachers were promoting. In our text, the list of gospel implications 
are divided in five categories. Older men, older women, younger men, I'm sorry, younger women, younger men, and then servants. If we look at this list of um, teachings that Titus was, suppo- was supposed to give, we notice that many of these things are behavioral things. Other items on this list are attitudes of the heart or attitudes of the mind. In other words, what accords with sound doctrine is a life of godliness. And Titus ought to teach in such a way that the lives of Christians begin to match the truth of what is being taught. Actually, dear friends, here's one way to think about it. One of the signs that sound doctrine is being taught in a church is that it bears fruit in changed lives in those who hear it. I love how Donald Guthrie, one of the commentators on this passage, said, the first practical outworking of such sound doctrine will be an insistence that behavior should tally with belief. There are homes in which Christian parents never talk to their kids about God and about what it means to be a Christian and how to live differently because we are Christians. There are churches or there are Christians in churches who might feel that if, if the teaching of the church focuses on, on how we should live differently, it borderlines on being legalistic. Just because we talk about living a different kind of life than the way the non-Christians live. Some are even afraid that if we talk about living differently and living in light of, of, the, of the beliefs that we have, that somehow we are going to lose track of being evangelistic. And somehow if we focus on, on living in a life that matches with what the Bible actually says, that people are not going to be interested in Christianity. So the way to be relevant, the way to be attractive, is to be seeker-friendly. Have services that are friendly to those who are seekers and, and say, make sure that you don't say anything that would somehow uh, tick off or get off on the right, wrong path for someone who's just a seeker. We have come to believe these days, especially in America, that the more light we keep the services, the better chance we have of reaching people for the gospel. So that the Sunday morning services should be primarily to talk to those who, um, who might be coming for the first time and keep things so light and so nice so that they will feel welcome to come back and they will feel that church is all about love and acceptance. Well, friends, first of all, all visitors should be welcomed. If visitors are not welcomed in our congregation, we have a problem. We should make all visitors welcome. Second of all, we want to make sure that people understand that the truth of God is a truth about God's love. But it's a love that rescues us from our rebellion and sin. It's a love that that puts us face to face with the reality that we are not well. That humankind, humanity, the human race is not right with God. We are at war with the one who made us. And we are in a defeated war. Because the one who made us has defeated our sin and has defeated our rebellion and has defeated the forces of darkness that keep us in rebellion. And one day, this great God will defeat all rebellion in an incredible way so that all those who remain hostile to him will be the target of his wrath, will be the target of his eternal punishment. Friends, this matter of God's love is serious because was it not for the love of God to rescue us 
from that race that was bound toward hell and God's wrath, it was not for God's love to rescue us from that. All of us would go blinded into it. But God has awakened our hearts, has opened our eyes, has brought to us the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is a sign of God's love, so that God would turn us around from the hell-bound race on which we have found ourselves and each person is. God wants us to turn us around and bring us back to Him. Oh, dear friend, this is a message of love, that God did not allow us in the rebellious of our own nature. He brought us to Him. In that sense, God is love. He wants all people to turn back to Him. Oh, friends, in that sense, the church is a community of people who are loving and are full of the display of God's love. Friends, realize that the love of God also meets us, confronts us with the news from which God had rescued us. The truth about Jesus is not just truth about our conversion, but it's truth about our change of, of direction and a new life that sets us on a path to pursue God and follow Jesus. Friends, before we look at the specifics of the Christian life, I want us to be assured that we understand that the foundation of our godliness, the foundation of our Christian life, is the grace of God. If you look ahead at the passage we have not yet read, which we will look at next week in more detail, in verses 11 through 14, Paul tells us why we can live a different life and why we should live in a different life, a different, a different life, a godly life. In verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God appeared. For the grace of God appeared. This is why all the lists in verses 1 through 10 make sense. This is why I can stand before you and teach God's word, not just teach doctrine, but also teach the implications of sound doctrine, because the grace of God has appeared. Because of the grace of God, we are now enabled to live a new life, and because of the grace of God, we are now instructed to live a new life. And if we separate the living of a new life from the truth of God, we fall in the same error that false teachers were promoting. And may I say to you, dear church, we live in a day and age, especially here in America, where this dichotomy, this division between what we believe and how we live is becoming greater and greater. And the church is called to ask believers and to teach Christians to bring this gap closer in, to get it to the point where what we believe matches with how we live. If you see in a church that there is little change in the lives of people hearing the truth, it is either because the hearts of the people are resistant to the truth, this is possible, or another reason is because the teaching of the church is incomplete and fails to spell out the implications of what fits with sound doctrine. Friends, godly living matters precisely because it is an implication of sound doctrine. And where godly living is lacking, we should be asking, is it because, perhaps, the sound doctrine is not being taught in its fullness? If you are sitting in a church where godly living is not explicitly encouraged or taught, where lack of godly living is not addressed and corrected, you might be sitting in a church whose teachers are distorting God's truth, no matter how sound that truth may first appear. So do you observe this emphasis that Paul gives to, to Titus? The church is to teach not only sound doctrine, but all the things that fit, or all the things that accord with sound doctrine. And what accords with sound doctrine is a godly life. That's why the details that Paul gives in verses 2 through 10 are instructions for different categories. So let's look at these instructions. We looked at the fact that teaching uh, 
sound doctrine is for godly living. Now let's look at the specifics. Point two in our outline, specifics for godly living. And here we will have five sub-points, five categories. Um, these are for older men, for older women, for younger women, for younger men, and for bond servants. Now if you were to ask me, Pastor, are there any specifics why some lists are longer than for others? I don't know. Um, why is it that the youth get the shortest list, even though they should deserve the longest? I don't know. Um, but let's look at this list and also realize that even though they are addressed to particular categories of people, in some way, all of these categories are for all of us. So let's look at this list of, of, of instructions. Some, some do's and don'ts. Older men. Now, what defines older? Some people don't like to think of themselves as older. Let's look at older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Which have you noticed? Do you notice how many of these words are actually similar to the list of, of qualifications for elders? Sober-mindedness. We've already talked about this word. It means being clear-headed, balanced in one's own thinking. Dignified means living a life worthy of respect. It can also mean living in a way that is above reproach or living in a way that is holy. Self-controlled means that we are prudent in our choices. We are in control of our affections. We are in control of our actions. And we are in control of our minds. We're self-controlled in our minds. And the fourth characteristic here is, the next one is sound. Sound. This word sound, we saw what it means last week. Uh, it means healthy. Being healthy. Uh, this health particularly is to be pursued in three areas. Health in faith. Health in love. Health in steadfastness. This instruction means that older men should pursue a healthy trust in God. They should pursue a healthy display of love towards God and towards others. And they should have a healthy display of endurance in their Christian walk. Friends, I thank God for the older men who are in our congregation. I know most of you in, in recent years have become more vigilant about your health. You're going to see the doctor more often, most of you. Uh, you're starting to take medication in increasing measures. You are vigilant about your health, and that's good. But Scripture encourages you to be vigilant about the health of your soul as well. Be vigilant about your health of faith, your health of love, your health of endurance. Is it possible that these instructions are meant to encourage older men so they might finish well the Christian life? Some of you older, me older men feel discouraged because you're no longer able to do the things you once were able to do. You no longer have the energy to do the things you once were able to do. And even if you do them, it takes you twice as long to rest afterwards and get back in shape. Discouragement can settle in. Your body is telling you, slow down, take it easy. While that's helpful for your soul, I'm sorry, while that's helpful for your body, it is not helpful for your soul. Even though you may need to take it easy in your health, physically speaking, in your spiritual life, this is no time to take it easy. Rather, keep on going. Keep being faithful. Keep being healthy. Keep pursue faith. Keep pursue love. Keep pursuing steadfastness. So that even while our outer bodies decay, and become more limited as we age, 
our inner beings need to be strengthened. Dear older brothers, keep trusting in God. Keep relying on God. Keep loving God and others well. Keep focusing on enduring to the very end so that your life is a life that's worthy to be emulated and modeled. Now, for any of us who don't think of ourselves as old, I understand. But all of us, regardless of age, should start working on these aspects now. Don't wait until old age to start working on these things. Start working on them now. Specifics for godly living for older women. Look at verse 3, older women. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Reverent in behavior. This expression means that older women should pursue the behavior which is appropriate for a holy person. A behavior that is holy. Friends, pursuing holiness is not just a matter of the heart. It's also a matter of the behavior as well. Friends, if, you have, if you've ever heard people say, behavior is not that important. What matters is the heart. Have you heard that sentence? It's a lie. Let me just say it straight out. It's a lie. It's so borderlines on being a false teaching that it's healthier for us to understand it as a lie. Now, let me clarify something about that statement. It is true, this is the one fracture of, of, of what I'm able to take out of that sentence that might be true. It is true that behavior alone is worthless without a heart that pursues holiness. That is true. And it is true also that some people might pursue holiness only in appearance. Just to give the appearance of, of being holy without the heart being involved in it. That is true. But yet, what is not true is that claiming that the heart is right without the fruit of behavior. That is self-deception. That behavior is an indication of the heart. Always. 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 So Titus was to encourage older women to be reverent in behavior. We should not be afraid, friends, as Christians, to call each other out. And this is not just for older women. This is for all of us. We should not be afraid or shy about calling one another and encouraging one another to be holy in behavior. The next two items address two other aspects. Not slanderers. Now, friends, again, all Christians should be watchful over this particular uh, uh, behavior of, of slander. Um, yet, for some reason, I don't know why this is addressed to older women. Is it perhaps because, and I'm just speculating here, so this is not what the Bible says, this is now my extra explanation. Is it perhaps because older women might have more time um, to talk, and they, they might love talking, and most often they talk encouraging things. And that's what they want to do. They want to catch up with what's going on with one another. They want to know how someone is doing. They are concerned for one another. I love the way our older women call each other up throughout the week. And if I fail to, to let everyone know about something, they're there to inform one another of what's happening. Good things. And, and, and when, when we may not be able to, to give a call to someone, I can count on the older women to call each other and check on how everyone is doing. Praise God for that. That is a wonderful thing to do. Is it possible that with much talking, a particular temptation can come in very easily? That a, a particular concern for someone might end up becoming a gossip? Or worse, that we might fall into false accusations of someone else or malicious talk. So therefore, there's a, 
an encouragement that older women should be cautious of this particular sin of slander. But may I say, you don't have to be old and you don't have to be a woman to fall into this sin. All of us and any of us can fall into it. We want to be cautious against it. The next one is not being addicted to much wine. Again, the issue here is not a total prohibition against wine, but a warning against becoming enslaved to drinking. Elsewhere in the New Testament, this prohibition is clearly given also to elders and also to all Christians. Instead, older women should focus on teaching what is good. Oh, dear beloved ladies in our congregation who are more advanced in age, one of the areas where the Bible encourages you to get involved in the life of the church is not merely to help in the kitchen or help with um, certain aspects in the life of the church, but specifically, there's one involvement that the Apostle Paul highlights for you, and that is teaching what is good, particularly in the lives of younger women. Older ladies, consider your retirement as an opportunity to invest in younger women, spending time with them, getting to know them, hearing about their joys and struggles. I encourage you to make it a point to become a friend of our younger women in our congregation so that you can pass on to them what is good. Any of you approaching the age of retirement in our congregation, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you know who you are. I want to give you a challenge. Make your retirement be about investing in the young women of our congregation. Make that a ministry of your life as you approach the age of retirement. One of the greatest needs in our women's ministry is for older women who would make themselves available to invest in younger women. I'm so thankful for our, our women's ministry who has been putting this emphasis of, of wanting to have Titus two women in our congregation. That's exactly how we call them. Titus two women. Can you guess where they come from? Where that label comes from? It comes from here. I pray that we would have more and more of that in our congregation. Older women, some of you may feel like you have nothing to offer. I've heard it from some of you that you don't know, you, you may feel not, you don't know what to talk. Friends, just your friendship just your time, your willingness to meet up with other younger women, to ask what's going on in their lives, your willingness to meet with them and ask them what does it mean for them to follow Jesus in the, in the challenges that they face, or simply meeting with them to pray for them, to pray for one another, is good. If you lack a list of things of how and what to talk to younger women about, Say, I don't know what to talk to them about. Well, I am so glad you asked that question. Because verse 4 gives you, black and white, a list of some things to talk to younger women about. So let's move on to verse 4. And at this point, this is also a, a conversation for what younger women. Here are some things, younger women, what you should be looking to learn how to grow in and train yourself in. Here are some things to consider. Verse 4 still speaking to older women, so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. To love their husbands and children. This instruction might seem strange at first, yet it deals with the importance of learning how family life ought to be conducted, how to nurture an atmosphere of love in the home, and wives have a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to set that atmosphere. It's a great responsibility to nurture such an atmosphere of love, which is directed both towards the husband and the children. Of course, every, elsewhere in the New Testament, we know that husbands are commanded to love their wives in a self-sacrificial way, as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Yet here, we see that the command is for 
women to learn how to love their husbands and children. But the point here is, older women, talk to younger women about what that looks like, how that love is displayed. What about when things get chaotic? What about when you don't know how to divide yourself up in all the things that need to be taken care of? What about the home in which both parents work? How does that look like? What are the joys and the challenges of setting up a, an atmosphere of love in the home? The next thing older women are to teach younger women is to be self-controlled. Did you see that word again in this passage? It showed up already three times. And if that's not enough by now, it will show up again in verse uh, 12. Self-control. Like Self-control is, is linked with being pure. The word for purity often describes things that are holy. In other words, older women are to train younger women to be pure or holy, to have an upright character, to have self-control in pursuing purity in mind, in speech, in values, in conduct, in motives, in character, in the way they relate. Younger women, have you ever struggled with pursuing self-control and purity? Have you considered asking an older woman or older women how they have dealt with certain areas of life where self-control and purity are a battle? Older women, have you considered talking to younger women about the lessons you have learned in your following of Jesus throughout the years about self-control, about how to pursue purity at all levels? What are areas in your life where you had to learn these lessons the hard way and you would love to pass this le these lessons to someone else? What about teaching them to be working at home? Now, this word, this phrase, does not mean that women should not work outside the home. Rather, it means that being busy at home um, is a responsibility and is an area where godliness can manifest itself. And now if both husband and wife are working, these responsibilities will likely need to be uh, divided. This is not a biblical bat that husbands can use against their wives to say, look, the, the home is only your responsibility and I'm, I got a free pass here. No, husbands don't, don't do that. Um, we can talk to you about that if that's your tendency. Um, but the point is, be sure that the home is an area where godliness is still and can be manifested. Older women, you have lots of experience, lots of practice, lots of, of life lessons of what it means to be busy at home. Pass that on to our younger ladies. May I say even, and, and this may sound very, may sound very um, fleshly, older women, you may want to teach younger women how to cook. You may teach them how to prepare things in the home. These are not bad things to pass on to our younger women who are starting life and, and feel like there's so much to learn and I don't know how to put all this together. Teach them what is good. Talk to them about these things. There's no, call it secular thing, that is off the table when it comes to passing on to the younger generation that which is good. Teach them how to be kind. The, literally, the word literally means being good or being helpful. Teach them how to be submissive to their husbands. Oh, friends, this area is, a, is, a, is an area that we could, we could spend a whole sermon on. What does submission to one's husband look like? This is an area which there's so much room for conversation and training. Our culture despises submission. Others have, have been exposed to a, an abusive submissive situation or an unhealthy submissive situation. Yet biblical submission is a beautiful experience that reflects God's authority over us. Teaching how that is to be reflected in the home can be a beautiful thing. Friends, these are areas that we can grow into as we learn them from those who are older than us. Older ladies, take this list as an initial guide of what to talk with our younger women. Of course, 
This means that over, o older ladies are already pursuing these characteristics. They also say there might be older ladies among us who have not grown with these characteristics in their own lives and feel that they're not able to pass this on to others since they themselves have not been following these characteristics. That's because some of them may have not been Christians. But recently, others may have been exposed and been a part of, of churches with a shallow Christianity. Some older women might actually seek to be trained in these areas. Friends, it's okay to recognize that we have areas where we need to grow. But at the same time, some of you older ladies don't realize that you have a lot to give and you're just shy about giving it in terms of life lessons, in terms of time, in terms of willingness to invest. And I want to encourage you, don't be shy about passing on to our younger ladies what the Lord has taught you. I pray that more of that will happen among us. Then a, a word for, for younger men. Friends, I really don't know why Paul gave just one word for younger men. But it's a word that sums up everything that young men need to know. Self-control. Self-control. There's so much to talk about that, that perhaps... And there's so many ramifications of that in the lives of young men, in the way they approach a relationship, in the way they speak uh, to their friends, in the way they might deal with an employer, in the way they are students at school, in the way they live in society, in the way they live in church, in the way they live in their families, self-control. It's interesting that in verse 12, the passage that we'll look at next week, self-control is something that not only young men and young women and older women and older men are to have. Self-control is something that the Holy Spirit of God, the grace of God, teaches us to do. Look at verse 12. The grace of God, which has appeared, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. In other words, self-control is evidence of the grace of God in our lives. Self-control is one of the lists of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Rather than giving a longer list of, of what to teach young men, Paul now directs his attention to Titus. He says to Titus, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus, you need, even though you might be young, you need to be an example of how to live the Christian life. The pastor, the spiritual leader, is to focus not only what he teaches, but also he should focus on how he lives the Christian life. The godly living must be passed on not only through teaching, but also through modeling. Christians must not be able just to hear a pastor teach and talk. Christians must be able to also look at the lives of the elders and see how they model the Christian life. And then Titus was also supposed to devote his life to the teaching that he was to give. His teaching was supposed to show integrity, dignity, sound speech that not, cannot be condemned. In other words, the teaching of God's word should be done with purity of motive, purity in demeanor, and purity in content. And then finally, Paul gives uh, instructions to servants or to bond servants. Look at verse 9. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. We might say about this fifth subcategory that it doesn't apply very much to us because we no longer have, especially in the Western culture, uh, this category of servants. Um, it's interesting, however, to notice that the implications of the gospel affected even the servants in that society. In other words, if they were the lowest of the social strata, the gospel implications affected even the lowest in the social status of society. But what's amazing about the, the instructions for them is why they should live 
in a way that was pleasing to their masters, in a way that were not argumentative, not pilfering, meaning not taking resources from their masters, but showing all good faith. Remember, these servants are in Crete. Remember the culture of Crete. They were lazy gluttons. Immorality was rampant. They called it good. And this was not just the people at the low side of society that were doing it. All society was acting this particular way. Well, can you imagine the gospel affecting the bond servants? Well, people would realize uh, 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 two men would, would come and talk about their servants. and say, One would say to another, oh, I have so much trouble with my servant. I, uh, he's, I can't trust him to go and do the shopping for me. Um, I can't trust him to go and act things. I always have to check after him. And the other person would say, oh, I got to tell you, I'm not sure what happened to my servant. Something really strange happened to my servant. Um, he started going to this gathering of Christians, and uh, I don't know exactly what they do there. Um, but after he started going there, he really starts acting differently. He, he, sh- he shows up on time for his tasks. He, he does his work well in a way that I no longer have to check after him. Um, I can send him to do my shopping, and he brings back the receipts and everything. Uh, seriously, something is strange about this. I've never had servants like this. What does that do to the gospel, to the testimony of Christians? Friends, it shows that the gospel can affect Christians at even at the lowest side of society, And even there, even through them, the truth of God can be spoken well when such people live out the implications of the gospel in their lives. Here's the final point about our sermon today, a short one, the motivation for godly living. The motivation for godly living. Why should we think about Christian living as matter, uh, godly living as, as, as being something that matters the motivation for godly living, verse 10b, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now Titus is still, or Paul is speaking to Titus still about bond servants. The reason why even they ought to live differently is so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now this motivation is not just applying to bond servants. It applies to everything that was written so far. The reason why we should live godly lives, the reason why godly living matters is because through our living, we can adorn the doctrine of God. What does it mean to adorn? It means to beautify it. It means to to put on it things that make it even more attractive, more beautiful. Now, you might say the the truth of God doesn't need to be beautified. The truth of God doesn't need to be adorned. In some ways, that's true. God's truth is beautiful in and of itself. But we beautify, we adorn God's truth, not for God's sake. We adorn God's truth for the sake of those who can't see the truth of God beautiful. We know God's truth is beautiful. The church knows God's truth is beautiful. But the people out there don't. They have no concept why this, this God, our, the Savior, is beautiful and he is worthy to be followed. How will they know that the truth of God is beautiful? Through the way you and I, you and I together, adorn this truth. Our way of life adorns the truth about God. Some churches often wonder what they can do to attract more people. How can we make God more attractive to the lost? So we have all kinds of creative ways. I mentioned seeker-friendly services, seeker-friendly events. Here's Paul's recipe for how to make God more attractive to outsiders. Our godly lives will make God's truth more attractive. 
our godly lives will make God's truth more attractive. When a liar stops lying and consistently speaks the truth, when a woman who is living in sexual sin is now, is now committed to a life of purity for God, when a, when a man who used to be always late and irresponsible with his work becomes responsible and becomes being worthy of trust. When a man who used to always be self-centered, always about his ways, becomes open to showing kindness to others, putting others before his needs. When a wife who is bossy always demanding her ways, is transformed by the gospel and becomes loving to husband and children, celebrating submission to her husband as an act of worship. When youth who are rebellious in their ways turn to God and learn the beauty of following God's ways, oh friends, such changes make the gospel beautiful. Such living makes our God looks beautiful. Godly living matters. It matters because it's evident that we are following sound teaching. It matters because we have lots of specific instructions in the Bible for such godly living. It matters also because it makes the truth of God more attractive to outsiders. May God help us to understand the importance of godly living. And may God help us live a godly life. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to become a people committed to living out the truth. Both as individual Christians and also as a congregation, as a church. Help us to encourage one another especially as the day gets closer and closer, help us to encourage one another towards love and towards godly living in all areas of life. Help us to be a congregation where, where models of that godliness abound. Help us to be a congregation that takes the initiative to invest in those around us, to take time to talk about godly living with one another. And, oh God, may you give us your spirit that continues to instruct us and teach us and train us in this, so that indeed the light of the gospel may be seen as beautiful to those outside this congregation. We pray this in the name of Christ.